Hello and welcome to Learning from Legends with me, Peter Switzer. On today's show, we catch up with the legend of the aviation industry in this country, the Deputy Chair of Rex Airlines, John Sharp, who, with his team, planned to stick it to Qantas and Virgin by flying city to city around the country. I found out, find out from him what the big plan is for this airline as it goes on an expansion path. And then I talked to Michael Marr, the CEO of One Passport, who tells us, all of us out there who would love to travel overseas, he tells us how we will fly in a post-coronavirus world. How will we get through our customs when we go to different countries? Will we need a special vaccination certification? We find out from Michael Martin. Well, joining me now is a legend of aviation. I know John wouldn't think himself being a legend, but I think people in the industry certainly know he is. And the first time I got to know John Sharp, he was a, a minister of the Crown. And am I right in saying, John, you were minister for aviation or whatever they call it in those days? Yeah, I was minister for transport and regional development in the Howard government. And then prior to that, Peter, I was um, I was the shadow minister for transport. We had all sorts of strange names for it. I was uh, uh, shipping and waterfront reform and uh, various different titles for about seven or eight years before we got into government. Mm. And uh, so uh, I always remember um, the Golden Post, which was my local paper, um, obviously in Goulburn, when I was appointed Shadow Minister for Shipping and Waterfront Reform, they misspelled it and had me down as the Shadow Minister for Shopping and Waterfront Reform. That would have been a lot easier to a lot easier portfolio than the one you had. <laughs> particularly popular with my wife, that would have been. <laughs> All right, so that's John Sharp, the politician. But then John Sharp had a very strong association with Rex. Just tell us about the history of Rex, John, John, before we start understanding where you were before you decided to take on the big the big airlines of Australia. Well, Rex started in 1953 with Max Hazelton, who started a business with an Oster, a single-engine aeroplane, and it grew. Uh, and then in 1965, Don Kendall started a regional airline in Wagga, and those airlines were both purchased by Ansett, in the latter stages of Ansett's life. And then when Ansett collapsed, they were put out for sale and they were bought and amalgamated and formed into Rex. So, you know, whilst Rex's name has been around for not quite 20 years, the business that we operate has been around for nearly 70 years. So it's it's been a regional airline. It's only operated from the regions to the capital cities and not between the capital cities. Yeah, okay. So that, that was a, an important point of distinction, which we'll talk about in a second. So how many um, um, connections did you have? How, how many regular flights did Rex have before you embarked on this new project? Well, we operated to 60 destinations right around Australia in every part of Australia with the exception of the Northern Territory. We operated a fleet of 61 Saab 340B aircraft, which uh, uh, 34-seat aircraft to turboprops. We operated uh, about 75,000 regular public transport flights uh, per year. We carried about 1.4 million passengers a year. Uh, and we managed to operate our business, Peter, unusually for an airline. We were always profitable. And even more unusually for an airline, we, we owed nobody anything. We had no debt. We owned all our fleet. Uh, we owned all of our buildings, warehouses, cars, trucks, equipment, and we had no interest bills to pay. And we also operate uh, the Victorian Air Ambulance Service, and we're about to commence operating the New South Wales Air Ambulance Service. 
Uh, and for many, many years, we operated uh, under contract for the Department of Defence, what was called tactical flying, which was simulating uh, fighters in small uh, business jets. And we also did target towing. So we towed a really great big thing on a 12,000 foot long piece of wire mm. behind an aeroplane and ships and aircraft fired at it and hopefully fired at the target, not at our planes, which actually they came pretty close to it. <laughs> Good to know for the pilot. So, John, um, the history of Australian airlines has been that you know when there's a, a, a effectively a third player in the market, um, you know one goes. How how has Rex survived? Given the fact that Qantas must have eyed you off and thought we'd rather these guys not be here. Let's play some you know, hardball with these guys to see if we can rattle them and get them out of the market. How have you survived? Well, we've survived, Peter, by having low costs. I mean, we, we, we've started as a family business, the Hazelin and Kendall families, that culture runs on to this day. And like all family-owned businesses, you, you know, it's your money that somebody's spending. And so you take a keen interest in how it's spent. Uh, we don't pay big wages. Um, we, um, you know, our senior people are paid in the, to the top of them are paid in the sort of the higher $200,000 a year bracket. Uh, for 10 years, we didn't pay a dividend um, and we kept all of the profits and we we uh, funded our capital expenditure out of cash flow when we built the company up to make it stronger financially. And, you know, we've survived as a consequence of that. So when we arrived at the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, we had no debt, we were always profitable. In fact, it's interesting, Peter, Rex has made, in the last 12 years, Rex has made more money than Qantas, more profit than Qantas. I mean, Qantas has made uh, a loss, a accumulated loss of now about 1.75 billion. And Rex has made about 300 million during that period of years. So it's a, it's a really interesting comparison mm. people, people think Qantas is the biggest and the strongest and the best but in fact we've we've made more money than they have mm. and we're in a far better position financially than they are with no debt and and uh, and low costs and so yes we you know Qantas um is it you know Qantas has always been the biggest the oldest airline in Australia we're the second oldest they're the oldest airline in Australia they're the biggest they've always used their weight their muscle to bully other airlines in the marketplace to get what they want um, and they're a very tough, very aggressive competitor. And Qantas has gone into some of our regional markets, you know, and in the last uh, uh, few months, um, and they've started to compete with us on those markets. And the only, there's no way they can make a profit on those routes. I mean, some of those routes, like Sydney to Cooma, we have 6,000 passengers a year. Mm. Um, you know, you divide it by two with two operators. And Qantas is going to go on that route. There's only 3,000, if you divide it in half, there's only 3,000 passengers a year. You can't make money on a route like that. Never can, never will. Uh, they're doing it solely to punish Rex, uh, to try and weaken us and tell us, you know, look at what we can do to you. We can do even more if you don't wave the white flag and give up. So, you know, they've, that's the way they operate. They always have. Uh, we, knew, they knew, we knew they'd do that, but we've, uh, we're in a good position. It's, it's, uh, you know, when you've got very low costs, like we do, we, we can withstand a lot of competition. Okay. So you're saying because you're now flying the routes, capital city, to capital city, that it's a bit like Robert De Niro. If you're going to mess with me, well, I'm going to mess with you. Is that, is that what's going on at the moment? That's exactly what's going on. You know, it's funny. I mean, Alan Joyce is a, is a fantastic fellow and like him very much, uh, but he's a really strong, competitive, aggressive, you know, competitor. And it's unusual for an Irishman to be like that, isn't it? 
Very. <laughs> Most Irishmen put them in a pub on a Friday night, they'll have a fight. So Alan, Alan is 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 very much uh, that sort of you know uh, very competitive mould. But you know these these routes that we're moving into, Sydney Melbourne, for example, we, uh, people don't realise that Sydney Melbourne is the second busiest airline route in the world. Ten point six million passengers a year. Mm. The biggest busiest one, Peter, is is New York to London. Um, and you know, New York to London, the busiest route in the world, has 13 airlines that offer a service between the two destinations. And the second biggest airline route in the world, Sydney to Melbourne, has two, Qantas and Virgin. And it's argued that the Sydney to Melbourne airline route is the most profitable route in the world. So, you know, there's room for more operators on those sorts of routes, which is where Rex intends to operate. Well, I guess Jetstar's there and Tiger was. Tiger's, is Tiger now out of the market, John? Yes, Tigers uh, uh, was dead and buried, uh, or died and buried, I should say, um, early on in the administration of Virgin last year. And so all of its fleet have now been disbanded, all of its crews have been made redundant. There are no passengers, no crews, no aircraft, it's gone. Okay, so does that also create a bit of an opportunity as well? Because it wasn't what you might call an ignored airline, people were using it. Oh, look, people used Tiger, it carried millions of passengers a year. Um, and in fact, it carried a lot of passengers on routes like Sydney to Melbourne, which, by the way, was Sydney to uh, Canberra. What am I talking about? Melbourne to Canberra. Uh, you know, it, it expanded that uh, Melbourne to Canberra route uh, enormously to 1.2 million passengers a year. And it was probably the most profitable route that Tiger had. So Tiger carried a lot of people. Um, and it was a significant operator in the market space, but it, it, it couldn't make money overall. And it, and so you know it's gone, and you could argue there's a space there for us, but we're actually a full service airline. I mean, we we offer the things that Qantas offers. You know, free check in luggage, twenty three kilos for economy, thirty two for business. Uh, we have um, you know f- free beverage on board, free food. Uh, we have lounges, you know, and and we've got first class. We've oh sorry, business class. We've got economy, and we've got what we call Rextra which is the extra legroom section. So almost three different categories within the aircraft. So we're full service. Mm. We offer very low price. You know, we're, we're coming into markets, um, you know, we're doing $79 Sydney to Melbourne, um, which is really cheap. Yeah. We're doing $299 for business class Sydney to Melbourne, which is less than half of the current business class price for Qantas. And, and, and you know, we're doing Canberra, Sydney Canberra, which we'll launch on the 18th, 19th of April of this year. Uh, we're doing that at $99, and the Bureau of, of Infrastructure, Transport and Regional Economics, which is one of the Commonwealth Government economic uh, think tanks, identifies that the average lowest fare for uh, Sydney to Canberra, which is only uh, serviced by Qantas, is $316. So the average lowest fare Sydney to Canberra currently, $316, and Rex is coming in at $99. So we're going to really change the landscape, make it very competitive and offer some fantastic deals for people who want to travel. Yeah. So uh, have you bought new planes? Maybe some of the planes have been uh, vacated by others or the, or the Saab can actually do the job? Well, the, the Saab's doing a great job, but it can't do the job that you want between Sydney and Melbourne and, you know, Melbourne to Coolangatta mm. and Melbourne to Adelaide, like we launched uh, just uh, recently. So, um, we've gone and uh, taken the ex-Virgin 737-800 series aircraft uh, that they parked because, you know, Virgin cut out half its fleet and, and so there were, there were lots and lots and lots of their 737s just parked in, if you like, in the desert for want of a better term. And those aircraft 
um, were sitting there. No one wanted them. There are thousands and thousands of aircraft parked around the world that nobody wants at the moment. Mm. And we went in and, and we negotiated to lease those aircraft from the owners of those aircraft because Virgin leased all their aircraft. And we've now uh, taken those aircraft at a very, very low price and we've painted them up in Rex livery. We've fixed them up on the inside and now they're operating for us and they're flying between Sydney and Melbourne and Melbourne and Adelaide and Coolangatta and all these places as we speak. And will you be a part of the frequent flyer program that Virgin and Qantas have? Yes, we will. We haven't got it in work, uh, in working yet. We are working on it as we speak. Um, but we will have a, a loyalty program, which, you know, will be different, but have similarities with what Qantas and Virgin have been offering passengers for a long time. Okay. So, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about what you're doing as a traveller, a pretty excessive traveller, i got to say. But also, you know, I, I, I'm a person who watches the stock market really closely. Do you think the, the, the market understands the, the potential of what your guys are going to, are going to be doing? No, I don't, I don't think the market really understands. We, uh, to, I suppose it's our own fault because we don't put a lot of effort into trying to sell the sizzle with our sausage, so to speak. We don't, um, we don't dress things up. We don't say things for the purposes of trying to boost our share price. Um, we've, we've never done that in the past and, and we, we're not going to change in that regard. But, you know, we are, uh, if, you, if you look at Virgin, uh, Bain Capital paid $3.5 billion for Virgin. And what they bought was half of what Virgin used to be. They bought a brand and they bought a lot of high costs and they had a lot of problems to resolve. Uh, Rex can easily be the size of Virgin, in fact, bigger within a few years' time. And, you know, our market capital on that basis would go up by 10 or 12 times. Mm. Has, has do you think aviation experts um, a understand where you're going and b uh, are, are any of them believing you can do what you want to do? Yeah, it's interesting because um, quite a number do. We've done a lot of briefings uh, with various entities in the last couple of months. They're all trying to get their head around, you know, what effect will Rex have on on say Qantas's share price, or what effect will our behaviour have on on Virgin's uh, viability and future, um, and I, I, I can I can start to see people now getting what we do, um, and 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 you know we've had you know, reasonably good share price over the last little while, um, but you know I think there's uh, there's really in the broader market, not a lot of people understand it, but some people are starting to understand us now. Because mm. because in a classic sense, you are a part of what we call the reopening trade. You know, pe- people couldn't use you for a, for a long time because borders were shut. Though I, I guess you might have done okay um, during the period when people wanted to travel, say, from Sydney to a, to a country destination because you could do it. But were people sort of afraid to go to airlines during the, the coronavirus period, John? Yes, they were, Peter. Um, you know, before COVID, we had an average of five and a half thousand passengers per day, mm. and, and over the course of a two-week period, we went from five and a half thousand average down to one hundred and twenty passengers. <laughs> that's that's fear on a on a grand scale. Yeah, and you know, on, on one of our routes, um, uh, Melbourne to Albury, in the month of August last year, we carried in the whole month we carried a total of nine passengers. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's a stunning. Uh, fall uh, mm. and and ne- never before in our 
life, you know, we've been doing this a long time and we've had GFCs, we've had all sorts of other things get, you know, get in the way of normal business, but they usually don't happen as quickly as that. So this has been very dramatic. Mm. Um, but, you know, people are coming back. Few people understand, but we, again, unusually like to any other airline, um, Rex, in the last half, the first half of the current financial year, we made a profit of uh, $9.9 million after tax, $14-odd million before tax. Mm. Qantas, of course, produced a statutory loss of $1.47 billion in the half year. So, you know, and I don't think any other airline in the world made a profit. So, you know, Rex is always doing things differently, um, you know, making a profit all the time, having no debt as unusual and now making a profit in a time when everyone's losing money is unusual. So and that, that's, that's what people don't get about us because we do things differently. Okay, so let's focus on the big changes and just, just in a nutshell, what are the big changes that you're bringing to market, which ultimately should have a big impact on your revenue, hopefully has a big impact on your profit as well, um, despite the fact that you are going to have competition. So what are the big changes to Rex that could actually not only excite the travellers of Australia but also potentially the stock market? Well, I think what Rex is doing and the big changes is that we are uh, expanding into the domestic market. Um, you know, we're expanding into a market that instead of having, you know, 1.4 million passengers a year, we'll have many multiples of that. Uh, we'll grow our domestic business as time goes by. Uh, we'll, you know, generate, we'll go from having revenues in the $300 million a year category up to, you know, in excess of a billion over time. Um, and we'll, um, we will be doing that differently. We'll be expanding our regional network uh, during that period as well, because Virgin has left uh, a number of uh, regional routes. Uh, for example, this week, we've started flying between Coffs Harbour and Sydney and Port Macquarie and Sydney, and we hope to fly in West Australia between Perth and Geraldton before too much longer. They're, they're routes that Virgin has abandoned, uh, and and we're, we're so expanding into those. They're quite big routes. We're expanding into the Canberra market. Sydney Canberra's 930,000 passengers a year pre-COVID. Sydney Melbourne's 1.2 million passengers a year pre-COVID. You know we are starting to grow that's that part of our business, and 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 we're doing it from a, a low cost base. So, you know we potentially uh, once we get established, we potentially will be a, a very strong business. Mm. Um. Were there any nervous Nellies in your camp saying, this is a very big step for Rex, you know, we've got a nice safe business, we make profit, we kind of fly under the radar to, to use a, a cute analogy, or, or, or was everyone on board saying, yes, it's about time we, we took the step up? Well, it's interesting because a lot of people think we're mad and we <laughs> probably are really, I suspect. You'd have to be mad to go into aviation to start with, I suppose, some people think, but um, look, we, we've been thinking about this for a long time and we were aware that Virgin was in trouble. I mean, we knew Virgin was in trouble two or three years out and in our view, it was just a question of time. We, we actually thought Virgin would probably go into administration at the end of 2020 um, and the COVID, you know, brought it on earlier. Mm -hmm. But um, so we've been thinking about it a long time. Uh, within our management group, it was the unanimous view. And our view was that there's never been a better time to go into the domestic airline business because there's a surplus of pilots, which always historically there's been a shortage of pilots. There's a, a surplus of pilots, good, experienced, well-trained, Australian-based 
pilots. There's lots and lots of cabin crew, really experienced people. There's lots of engineers. There's lots of support staff. There's lots of space at airports, which was always a problem before because they're always congested. And, and of course, there are lots of aircraft available at absolutely bargain basement prices. And so we thought, well, there's never been a moment like this in the past. You know, this is what we've been working all these years towards being able to achieve to run a, a low cost business that's profitable and with no debt. And now's the opportunity to make take advantage of that. And so we went into the domestic yeah. business. So, so, John, this is, must be a very important part of your risk management and also the, the estimation of what this business can do. And clearly, the longer it takes us for yuppies like myself and my wife and all my colleagues to fly overseas, the more we're going to fly locally. So it seems to me you have a, a perfect window for to grow this business at a time when people are flying you know, interstate and intrastate. So how long do you think it's going to be before international flights will start eating your lunch? So it gives you that opportunity to grow this business. Well, it's an interesting question, uh, Peter, because you know people obviously can't fly overseas and there's money there to be spent and there's you know a desire to have a holiday and see something different and so Australians are, are, are flying to places they never would have thought of I mean um, our route to Ballina which is Byron Bay that, that you know that air, that service is absolutely chock-a-block when we're putting on additional services to cover for the demand um, places like um, you know Broome in West Australia you can't get a, a room in Broome to save your life same with Uluru um, friends of mine have just come back uh, from a week at Norfolk Island. They, they wanted to go on a holiday. They'd never been to Norfolk Island. I thought they'd give it a go. They did, and they had a lovely time. You can't get on to Lord Howe Island. You know, there are places that, you know, people have, you know, would never have think, thought to go to, but they're now going to it. So how long will it take uh, before the international services resume? Uh, well, you know, Alan Joyce Qantas is saying October of this year, he, he was selling tickets for July of this year, the 1st of July. He was just a couple of months ago, he was telling us that they'd start servicing the international network up to, you know, London and LA and so forth by July the 1st and they started to sell tickets for that. Well, there's, there was no way then when he was selling those tickets that they could have started by July 1. And I, as much as we'd all like to see it happen, I don't think there's any way in the world that it'll happen in October of this year either. Um, if you look at Europe, uh, the third wave is now going through Europe. Um, it, they say it's going to be worse than the first wave. Um, you, you've got a poor rollout of the vaccine in Europe. You've got the US where they've got a really good rollout of the vaccine, but, you know, it's it's still very much out of control in the US. And the big problem the US has got is the Mexican border, which is very porous. And you've got people coming out of Mexico every day of the week and there's no controls in Mexico. It's the second highest death rate in the world, 320,000 people. So, you know, America's going to have a, a problem for a, a quite a long time yet. Europe's going to have a problem for quite a long time yet. And I, I don't think we'll be going to those destinations. I do think, though, that we'll be going to places like New Zealand and maybe going up into Singapore um, and, and those sorts of uh, destinations where they do have things under control. I think that's very doable. But for the bulk of where tr Australians normally would travel, uh, to Europe and to America, I think we're looking at somewhere in 2022. And I think um, IATA and, and, and Alan Joyce uh, follows on, on that lead of IATA's, and, and I agree with him, and that is that we'll see things internationally 
return to full in probably 2024. So it's some years away yet. Yeah. One last question. I, I know it's unusual for you to be cheeky, um, John, but you called the government support of the aviation industry Qantas Keeper. Is that Was that you or did you just actually repeated what other people said? <laughs> well, no, I didn't, I didn't think of it. Well, you know, if I can claim credit for an original thought, um, that was one. Um, but look, it, it, it's... Um, I did call it Qantas Keeper because the primary beneficiary of all of this is Qantas and the, the initial 13 destinations that were identified uh, by the government to receive the 50% discount on the cost of tickets. Every single one of those were routes that Qantas flew to and you know, Rex flew to some, not many, and Virgin flew to some, not many, but Qantas flew to all of them. And, um, and of course, the what, what I call the, the crew keeper uh, part of that uh, Qantas Keeper plan, which is to support the cost of uh, keeping international crews, you know, within the yeah. tent. Um, you know, the eight thousand six hundred jobs that they're going to be protecting, seven and a half thousand of those are at Qantas. You know, disproportionate to anyone else. So, you know, it is primarily uh, a fund to help Qantas, uh, and and that's why I call it a Qantas Keeper. And I. I you know, it was interesting because the whole, and of course the, the other part of it was the visual aspect of it. And there was the government, the prime minister, the, you know, the treasurer, the deputy prime minister, the minister for tourism and trade, um, all standing in front of a, a Qantas aeroplane inside a Qantas hangar with the CEO of Qantas and Qantas crews in Qantas uniforms. Um, within the background, it was Jane Hartlicker from Virgin, but it was very much an, a Qantas event. And, and of course, Qantas, uh, planned that some days in advance of the actual announcement. So they were clearly on the inside of the announcement because none of us had uh, advanced notice of when it was going to occur. Um, but the Qantas did, and therefore they started planning the press conference and positioning things for it a few days before the, the event actually took place and the announcement was made. So it, it was very much a package that was designed to help Qantas. Uh, since and, uh, to be fair to the government, I should say, Peter, to be fair to the government, they did extend RANS and DANS, which are the two things that help the regional and domestic airline businesses. Mm. And they did things, you know, for uh, security costs and also some of our Air Services Australia charges, they did that as well. Um, so there was help there for us through those things. But but the bulk of the package goes to Qantas. All right, John. Well, we wish you a lot of luck. It's a, I think it's a great innovation. I think um, you know, someone like me who's a business class traveller, I'll be very happy to give you guys a go. And uh, I'll give you the thumbs up. I hope it really works for you. Well, thank you very much, Peter. I, I can assure you now, they've been having flown on Qantas and Virgin probably more than a thousand times over the years. Our business class product is as good as anybody's in Australia. And oh, our cabin great. service is just as good. Okay. Uh, good luck with it, mate. Good luck. Thank you, Peter. Well, it's time for a quick word from our sponsor, and this time the sponsor again is the Switzer Organisation. I want to tell people who've been watching our Monday Investing Show, and we've got about seventeen to 20,000 people watching that show on a fairly regular basis. We've now made the Investing Show on Thursday not just about property, but we have a lot of um, fund managers and CEOs of various companies, and we're introducing companies that you might be interest, interest, interested in, and also we're having probably what I think is the best and most important property story of the week so that's on youtube just go to youtube.com switzer media and you'll find the various programs it goes out monday and thursday nights joining me now is michael ma who's a ceo of one passport at a time when 
I think many Australians are just desperate for the chance to fly overseas and get back to normal life as we knew it uh, before the coronavirus came to town. Michael, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Great to be here. All right. So why don't you tell us, Michael, what One Passport is? So One Passport is a smartphone app for individuals and a software as a service for organisations that provides a mobile credential. So we help people in highly regulated industries who are mobile, like doctors, nurses, miners, construction, et cetera, be able to move around between those highly regulated places. Okay. So the, the passport is actually permitting them to do what? Most to, in order to access those environments, as a doctor to move between a hospital, for example, you need to be able to demonstrate that you have a, a verified degree, APRA membership, Medicare provider number, uh, potential insurance, uh, and then you have a scope of practice that allows you to do certain types of work. Um, so depending on your industry, you've got to show those kind of things, qualifications, CPD, and that now includes vaccinations like uh, COVID test results or vaccinations. Um, how significant was this before the coronavirus? You know, the, the fact that there was one passport, I would have thought most people could travel anywhere, but obviously there were obviously protocols. It's been, it's hard to say, but COVID has been good for us from a commercial point yeah, of view. Of course, yeah. Makes it sense. has focused the world on mobile or, or transient workers in mm. many industries, including a lot of the ones around aged care, healthcare, childcare, et cetera. And it's focused the world on regulatory compliance and the requirements for that. Yeah. But this, imagine the world before the coronavirus and you had a business then called, I presume, was already, was already up and running. Called one yes, pass. Been around for four years. So, so who were you catering for them? Would have been a much smaller number of of affected people. I would have thought. Uh, our industries haven't changed. We're still very much focused on our workforce in those highly regulated fields. Mm. What it's done is focus those industries because a lot of them, like aged care, they they have a limited budget, and they've got to choose where they spend it on workforce matters. It's not on client matters, mm. and so. Uh, we were probably number four or five on the list of top five things I want to do. Suddenly we became number one or two. Yeah. Okay. So that was good. All right. So let's talk about, because, you know, it's, it's great that you're in that position and it's great that your business has done really well, but the people listening to this probably want to know what, what you think is going to happen around things like um, travel bubbles and COVID passports. How do you think, for example, COVID passports are going to work in the future? I think um, vaccination passports or immunisation passports is probably the, the, the best term. Yep. I think it needs to track a variety of information. Part of it is verified ID about someone. Yep. Then their verified uh, airline flight and down to their seat number. And then the, the vaccination aspect or immunisation aspect saying you've either got a recent negative COVID test result or a recent vaccination. Mm. We're going to, Australia's in a very lucky position. We're in a bubble compared to a lot of the world that by the end of this year, probably by October, November, anyone who wants to get vaccinated will have the opportunity to get vaccinated. But as soon as we open up those borders, which we're all dying to go traveling again, mm. um, we open up into a whole other world of hurt. The rest of the world will probably take estimates to another six or seven years to get vaccinated. So we believe when we have a chief medical officer and we, we, we work with the Linux Foundation out of New York and this is our consensus that for a long time, the test is going to be 
as important, if not more important, as that arbitrator of can you get on an international flight than anything else. Mm. So the ability to show a, a verified uh, negative, recent negative test result within 72 hours of flying, that will be the arbitrator of whether or not you can cross a border. Okay. And so are you also thinking that country to country, there's going to be different standards and protocols uh, governing how you might be affected as a traveller. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking, let's imagine New Zealand. New Zealand's had a very good uh, track record with the coronavirus compared to most other countries. Is it likely in the, sh- in the relative short term that we might be able to fly to New Zealand and come back? As long as we've been vaccinated, uh, we won't have to go into, um, into quarantine when we come home. We will develop those travel bubbles. And as you say, we'll probably grade countries. We already grade uh, countries as Australia. We grade countries based on their passport. So there are certain countries that you can come and stay into Australia, come as a tourist very easily. Whereas other ones you need to have almost migrating here, proof and funds and other things to actually get here, even for a 90 day tourist visa. Mm. So there are countries that will will level them on a a dodginess factor of how likely they are to uh, be at risk of bringing COVID into Australia. So probably New Zealand and Singapore, our two closest neighbours, will probably have a uh, travel bubble with soon. They're on top of the virus. They're on top of the protocols. They've got a high, a very low degree of infected people. They have great processes in place if someone is picked up before they fly or when they arrive. So in Singapore, I think currently you're flying, you get tested when you arrive, and you self-isolate for the 24 hours until that test comes out. And then you're free to move around. Yeah. Um, but it's because they see where you're coming from and they've got great processes in place. Compared to many places, like uh, much of Europe is still going into its third wave of, of lockdowns and, and, and COVID explosion. Mm. So we'll probably have very different protocols for those countries. Yeah. And, and so are you expecting um, travel to um, be normalised by when? Now, by normalised, I'm... I'm, I'm prepared to cut out those countries that are really struggling, like, for example, Brazil and whatever, African countries. But let's just say the big core areas we go to is mainland Asia, um, uh, Europe and the US. How long before you think we're able to go to those um, major attractions for tourists? I couldn't give you uh, a, a time, I'm afraid. It, it is a movable face. Even this morning, uh, Brisbane's gone into lockdown. Mm. Uh, we have ta- we have staff in Brisbane who are coming down to Melbourne uh, just after Easter for uh, gathering for the next quarter of business, and that's all been put on hold as we don't know if they'll be able to fly. Yeah. Um, it, and that's within Australia. So internationally, I don't know. I think the first opening up of borders will be for required travelling, so humanitarian aid, commercial, uh, bringing international students back into Australia. Mm. Those type of things will happen before we get tourism uh, both inbound and outbound. Mm. So the the thought that October 2021, which I think uh, Alan Joyce and Qantas were hoping for, um, that's going to be very restricted compared to what we all thought when we heard Alan utter those uh, words. I, I would hazard a guess it'd say Singapore, New Zealand and probably Fiji. Mm. Um, the Australian government's working very hard to, to support to create that travel bubble to Fiji and then hopefully to build one across the Pacific, yeah. uh, which one you include New Zealand and Singapore is probably the only other place at this stage that I would see in the short term. Yeah. And I suspect 
the bookings for those three destinations would be <laughs> stacking up at a rate of knots already. I, I don't think Qantas will be accepting Qantas frequent flyer seats on those ones. <laughs> okay. That, so is there anything else you think we, we should know given your vantage point of what's going on? I, when people talk about the return to normality, I, I think that's the thing that people have to come to grips with, that this is the new normal. We will need uh, personal uh, passports, uh, immunisation passports or uh, something like that that we can carry with us so we, we can have that information on hand to be able to share when required. And this is our new reality. They talk about the once in a hundred year uh, epidemic, uh, pandemic, but it, it, it's we we closely missed or just missed SARS, MERS, and other things that have happened outside of Australia, happened outside of Anglo countries. So we don't really count them here, but they're very close, and we just missed them. And so now COVID is hit here, and we will get other ones. Bill Gates has been talking about this for years, so that now this has happened, and we've put in protocols, we've upgraded technology. Uh, you know, if you think twelve months ago vaccinations and test results, which is called serology, uh, was done in a little yellow book that the World Health Organization handed out and your doctor scrawled in it that you had had something. Mm. Then we moved to an SMS response saying, no, you've had a negative COVID test result, you're free to get on with life. And people started forging the test result, the uh, the SMS. So it went to, if it, was a, if it was a vital thing, such as crossing an international border, you had to go to a doctor. They took the swab from you. They sent it away. They got the results. And yes, it's the same bloke sitting in front of me. I'll write you a letter like a prescription. But now I can buy that letter online, upload it into Adobe software, create <laughs> my own letter and off to the races we go. So now the standard that the world is seeking is an end-to-end chain of custody uh, for test results. Yeah. Now, a verified vaccination is much easier than a verified test result because I sit in front of a doctor, they stick a needle in my arm, and with my phone, I can scan the batch number of the, the vaccine. I can scan the doctor's vaccine, um, QR code identity, and I've got a verified vaccination. But with a pathology, because they take the swab and they send it off and it does a circular route back to me, I don't actually meet the professionals, in this case, pathologists who actually do the test. So how do you get that vaccinated? How do you get that verified? So there's only one group that I know of in the world who do this. Uh, there's one provider in Australia called Helios, uh, formerly primary healthcare. Mm. They're part of a group called Global Diagnostics Network, which covers about 85% of the world's population. And that's the first group that I know that can actually do this end-to-end chain of custody um, and where they're e-wallet. Um, so people can publish their data into one passport from Global Diagnostics yeah. and then be able to share that as they travel. Yeah, so I'm kind of listening to you, Michael, and thinking to myself is that what the world needs is something that authors like George Orwell and Alice Huxley effectively warned us about that there will come a time when the whole world will need to know whether your vaccine's safe or not and they're not going to allow it to be something that gets so easily forged. And so as a consequence, the information they have on us is going to be very intrusive, but at the same point, everyone will see it as being a really crucial thing to have because otherwise you might be a, a an infection carrier that could ruin a, a city or a town or a business or whatever. Well, you see movies like um, uh, the one where there's only men left because all the 
women have become sterilized. And so, gee, that's a, that's a scary um, movie, mate. Like, why would you bring that up with all my <laughs> listeners? Well, uh, we, we, we don't know where this will go. Um, uh, I get into a lot of forums where people are saying, we'll be vaccinated. Will you be mandatory to be vaccinated? And I, I don't think the government will mandate it mm. unless it is mandated within an industry like a caring industry, for example, where yeah. if you're a frontline worker to do the job you require, it'll be more like a driver's license. You don't need to have a driver's license unless you want to drive a car. Mm. Um, if you don't want to get vaccinated, that's fine, but you won't be able to travel internationally is the situation I believe we'll get into. Yeah, and so a country that has a whole lot of people who want to travel will ha actually have to establish protocols so the rest of the world say, oh, yeah, Australians have a fair income. Their people, if they say they're vaccinated, they are vaccinated, so therefore so they're safe to come into our country. They're going to require something that shows that. Mm. Um, now, in Australia, we've developed the Australian Immunisation Register, AIR. Mm. Now, it's been around for a while. Uh, it's under the federal government. Um, but until now, it's only been for tracking children's immunizations. It was mandatory for those. It wasn't for adults. But as of March this year, it's become mandatory to do, I think, the flu vaccination, a COVID vaccination. Uh, but unfortunately, it only tracks the vaccinations. It doesn't track the other side of immunization, which is test results. Mm. That's problem number one. And problem number two is it doesn't export data to anything. So if I'm a frontline worker, uh, from, a, from a waiter to an aged care carer to a, to a doctor or nurse, I can't actually take that information out of air and share it with my employer. An employer can't have a, a link between their HR system and air to actually show that Michael's got a current vaccination or, yeah. or a negative COVID test result, something like that. So it, it's not as practical as we would like it to be. Um, and, that, and that's where we come into play uh, as, a, as a downloadable smartphone app that you can record all this information, including inbound from air, from doctors, from uh, global diagnostics and be able to carry that with you. Yeah. So when are you going to list your company, mate? It sounds like you know, the blue sky opportunities are looking better. Uh, we have a number of people knocking on the door. At, <laughs> I'm an entrepreneur. I'll keep growing it. Well, it needs an entrepreneur at the helm. I'll stay in place. Mm. Um, but at some stage, it'll get beyond my capabilities and we'll bring in a, a larger team of people and go for something like that. Okay, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you've been very insightful. Thank you. That's the show for this week, and I look forward to talking to you next week. I've got a sneaking suspicion I will snare Gay Waterhouse for the show just ahead of the big races at Royal Randwick. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>